Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening to everybody listening wherever and whenever this podcast finds you. My name is Dustin. I'm your host at the Did You Know Podcast. Today, I'm going to be interviewing Paul Pewey of Edge Wallet. He's the CEO and co-founder there, and uh, he has a background in entrepreneurship with uh, other companies in the tech field. So we talk about that, just entrepreneurship, his background, his an origin story within Bitcoin and the Edge wallet and its features, which is actually one of the, the main wallets that I do use and really appreciate. So I think you guys are gonna like this episode. If you could do something for me and head over to Apple, iTunes, and leave a five-star and a written review or wherever you listen to podcasts, but iTunes really, really helps. Head over to supportmypodcast.com. There's other ways to help out, but there's also a listener discount program where you can find discounts absolutely for free that's available to all my listeners on a variety of products from Trazers to Keep Keys to Mushroom Coffee to Bitcoin.tax, everywhere and wherever things that you're uh, that you're using within the Bitcoin and larger space. And I'm working every day to get more and more for you. So head on over there. It's absolutely free. And a big thanks to my sponsor, eToro, which is a trading site which trades regular traditional assets as well as crypto assets it has uh, one trillion dollars in trading annually a, uh, a community of over 11 million traders that you can reach out talk with they offer a lot of innovative tools like virtual trading portfolios to practice strategies and copy trading where you can actually copy successful traders portfolios and trade as they trade automatically so head over to did you know crypto.com etoro and that'll give you 50 free bucks when you sign up using that link and it also lets them know that you listen to the podcast and appreciate it so the last thing that i wanted to say is thank you for listening i really do appreciate it feel free to reach out at any time i really love hearing from you guys and enjoy the show like to welcome Paul Pui, co-founder of Edge Wallet, an innovative non-custodial software wallet solution that I actually personally use. And he's also an electrical engineer and an entrepreneur. Paul, welcome to the show. Hey, Dustin. Thanks a lot for having me on the show. Yeah. So I, I know that you've been in this space for a while. Can you maybe kind of start, like you go way back. And I know that prior to all this and even prior to Bitcoin, that you worked in engineering for several tech companies, and after that started, uh, you know, a few other small ventures yourself. Um, I believe that uh, there's some climbing involved there as well. Um, <laughs> yep. I was just wondering what your journey was, you know, from then all the way up to now. Yeah, definitely the journey has been varied to say the least. Uh, start off as uh, electrical engineer, computer science graduate from Berkeley. You know, I've always been a tech kid at heart ever since. You know, I was able to pick up a Commodore 64 back in the 80s. You know, I coded up my own database to hold, you know, names and addresses for people that my dad, who was a real estate agent, would send mail outs to. Code up my own database, print labels, things like that. In a way, my entrepreneurial spirit started when I was in junior high, even as far back as that. And of course, you know, being a tech guy and a tech nerd, um, went into engineering at school and then worked in Silicon Valley for a couple different tech companies, one that many people have never heard of, Chromatic Research. They were an early 
uh, graphics card GPU company back when the term GPU didn't exist. I was there for a little bit and then quickly went over to NVIDIA, which is a company that many people in the tech space have heard of, you know, building the world's first GPU at the time in the uh, late 90s going into mid 2000s is when I had uh, worked for NVIDIA. But then I had kind of exited technology almost completely and worked in small business, running everything from a restaurant, bar, nightclub to uh, being a program manager at a climbing gym and even doing some outdoor guiding. And I think it was actually the experience in small business and dealing with a lot of the both the financial systems involved for small business, the payment systems um, that are both cash, especially at a bar nightclub environment or uh, credit card and which are very heavy with compliance and privacy uh, regulations deal with that stuff is actually what probably made me far more compelled and interested in Bitcoin when I discovered it in 2013. You know, it's, it's funny because you talked about doing, um, you know, uh, climbing expeditions and things like that. I said, I, I that's kind of, I, I, not specifically climbing, but I grew up, um, in, in Alaska. So I worked in the summers in high school at a raft company and all that kind of stuff. And I really, as much as I, I like being in the space that I do kind of miss uh, being oh, yeah. in the outdoors all the time. Yeah. Um, I do miss it as well. I was definitely healthier at the time and, you know, in much better shape than I am now, but you know, you kind of mix up your life and, you know, you, you love one thing and you transition to another. I wouldn't mind getting back into a heftier amount of outdoors like yourself at some point, hopefully sooner than later. Yeah. So, you know, the term entrepreneur used to be what you called someone that hadn't, you know, made it, I guess, in a way. And it really on the last like 10 years, it's become, you know, a title prestige that's that's, you know, glorified. And while I'm glad that it has, because I'm glad that the idea of running your own business and taking those chances is something that we're starting um, or have already kind of moved into a an era where that's encouraged um, in much larger part of society than it had before. But I think it glosses over, you know, the years of hustle, the immense hard work and failures that kind of come along with that, because you don't get to where any kind of success until you've had a lot of those experiences. So for you personally, what has your experience been? I mean, you can go um, not just, you know, what you're doing now, but even before as well. You know, what struggles have you had to contend with along the way and even uh, up until today? You know, in with respect to kind of an entrepreneurial spirit, I mentioned that you know when I was in junior high, I formed a company that you know did these did these mail outs for real estate agents, and while that I think had an essence of entrepreneurial spirit, obviously it wasn't a very serious business. You know, it was like during the summertime and and in the weekends and evenings uh, in between being in junior high, high school. So it wasn't a, a serious entrepreneurial effort, but it at least kindled the spark of hey, it's actually kind of nice being able to to really build something, and I think that's what a, a lot of what, what makes for a lot of common sentiment amongst entrepreneurs is that they want to build something uh, that didn't exist before, right? Whether it be a product, a service, or whatnot. And so definitely there are huge amount of challenges and, you know, I wouldn't cons consider myself a, a successful entrepreneur yet at this point in time. Um, the companies that I had uh, help build, you know, I didn't do it by myself. I wasn't like a, a solo founder in the kind of small business space were a mix of ones that I, was just simply an employee of to ones that I was an investor or, or partner in. 
and you know the the businesses prior aren't around anymore. They were small businesses, and like many restaurants, you might have seen, uh, you might have heard most go out of business. And the one that I had worked with, you know, had a, a really great run. You know, being voted the top ten new restaurant of the year it had launched, um, being voted one of the top one hundred restaurants in the city of San Francisco over the course of uh, like three consecutive years that it had existed. Yet even amidst that, it was insanely difficult to. To kind of keep that success going and into the an era of you know long-term profitability and i think as many entrepreneurs will realize some of the biggest challenges are just the fact that you it's hard to keep uh, to to hire and keep good people is one challenge and plus when you're in an, an entrepreneurial environment you're not in a big business um, you find that you just have to do a lot of different things many of which you're not an expert at and you just hope that you're an expert at or good enough at enough of the important things that the stuff that you're not so good at, uh, you're able to make up for. That, that being probably the, the biggest challenge that I've experienced across you know, the, the businesses that I've either founded or, or run that are on the small to medium size is that you're just having to do way more per person than larger companies. You're not able to specialize into one thing that you can really focus on and be really good at. And therefore you're gonna have to make compromises on how well you do certain tasks and choose which ones you really want to focus on and be good at. Um, that's at the heart of uh, the challenge. And of course, resources are, are frequently low and dealing with that equates to what you mentioned, which is the tremendous amount of hard work. Well, yeah, I think anytime that you try to bootstrap anything, you pretty much have to, you know, like you said, wear a lot of different hats and do a lot of different things. And it's a massive amount of uh, of just research and attempts and hustle to try to get, you know, the, the 13 things that you're trying to do uh, medium uh, and then the, you know, one or two things that you're really trying to focus on, but uh, have to do the other things until you get to that point where you can hire people to actually do that for. But I think it's, a, exactly. it's, it's a great lesson because it also makes you a better, I, I you know, CEO or whatever your position may be, because then you're able to point out kind of inefficiencies while also recognizing that nobody's going to care about the big company as much as you are. Um, but you're able to kind of identify where there's, you know, where there's problems or inefficiencies within your company when, when people are actually doing that for you. Um, but uh, with, with Bitcoin, you know, it, you know, was a niche and in still many ways, it, it's a niche passion, but in 2017, you know, we kind of saw this explosion of business in the space um, that I think it kind of hearkening back to the entrepreneur uh, section that we just talked about, you know, kind of portrayed the difficulties in building in this very, you know, nascent industry um, for a period of time that, you know, later 2018 and 2019, we're kind of really starting to see the, the real truth of that and, and that 2017 was this it was it was a you know beautiful time but it, it was kind of an aberration um you know in, in the spectrum and you know that while we see the apple microsoft google stories in the early days of computing and the internet that show success and you see the documentaries it shows you know they worked hard and then they had success and then great wealth because they got in early and they recognized a a, a new space that was emerging and full of promise but it's i think it's much more difficult to build and gain market share and grow in these new spaces than a lot of people understand. So what has your experience been with building within Bitcoin versus say building businesses or running businesses in the other industries that you have uh, experience in? So there's probably two primary differences that I've experienced is that 
Uh, number one, when you're building on a technology layer that is very, very nascent and new, you just simply don't have the tools at your disposal that you know you might be accustomed to, and especially the people that you hire aren't accustomed to. They're accustomed to having you know this framework, this environment, this editor, uh, these libraries available to them to do some of the you know basic to advanced things. And in Bitcoin and cryptocurrency, a lot of that just kind of isn't there, isn't well documented, is in early stages of development. The tool sets, the foundation that you're building on top of is just really rocky. And I think this is probably one of the, the biggest technical hurdles and in some ways hiring hurdles for, for crypto is, you know, there's, there's people, there's good developers, there's great developers, and then there's developers that are okay and comfortable being very uncomfortable like standing on shaky ground and that's you know admittedly kind of hard to find i mean it's the same thing like hey do you do you want to be the carpenter building a house but realizing that the entire bedrock that you're building on is rather shaky and unstable but you're just going to somehow gonna have to build a stable house on top of it it's it's hard to find that in the masses of people that you might bring onto your team and it's everything from a developer to your bookkeeper your book, every bookkeeper you could you could hire in America has probably no experience dealing with anything other than the U.S. dollar, especially at a small business level. And every startup is basically a small business. Introduce a foreign currency, let alone a very volatile foreign currency. Now you've taken your bookkeeper and torn probably half their hair out. This is stuff that's inherently unique with crypto. And then take and then th this shaky ground, this foundation of like of tool sets that just aren't available to you is probably the first big challenge of building, creating a business in Bitcoin cryptocurrency. And then second to that, and this is probably one of the biggest challenges, is and what takes out a lot of companies in this space, is that almost certainly every cryptocurrency company and their success and revenue profits is to some degree correlated with the conditions of the market. What's the price of Bitcoin? What's the transaction volume across the world of, of Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies? That will almost certainly heavily affect every single company in the space. That's fine and that makes sense because almost every company has a market and they're affected by the, by the conditions of that market. Now, if you're in the medical industry, if for whatever reason the medical industry starts to shoot up and people have a high demand for your services, things you know, you will have a higher demand. Um, and the same thing for AI and for drones. The difference, though, with cryptocurrency is that you have a market cycle that's incredibly volatile. Every two to four years, you have a big spike up and then a huge crash down. And nowhere have I ever seen or heard of an industry with companies that have to deal with that type of spike up because when it spikes up you have more users you have more customer service calls that you need you have more developers you're going to need to service that as well yet when it crashes down you don't need all those people and you don't have the the revenue and the you know profits to be able to sustain that team so being able to rapidly scale up and scale down a company according to these huge cycles is probably one of the biggest biggest challenges in this cryptocurrency world that no entrepreneur has probably ever had to deal with since the beginning of time. And so you take that and you, you add on this shaky bedrock of you know, foundational tools, accounting tools, um, bookkeeping tools, and technological tools. Those two together make for one of the most challenging industries to, to build a company on. Yet, of course, the good thing about that is 
the sharpest and best people look for challenges. And so in a way it filters out those that, you know, you don't really want working in this industry because it is challenging. Yeah. I was, you know, one of the things I was going to ask was about the, the accounting aspect of it not, not specific details or anything like that. But I would imagine that just from my own personal experience, and trying to do my own personal taxes that uh, the the accounting aspect of it is just a nightmare of of trying to navigate these kind of very they're getting slightly more clear maybe not better uh but more clear clarity is you know at least nice within a business even if it's not advantageous because at least you know where you can step and where you can't uh but i would imagine that with you guys you know collecting fees at certain times and different you know the price changing constantly um, and different users, you know, moving in and out at different times that that just has to, and trying to find somebody that can even understand that that's used to dealing with, you know, 1040s and 1099s and, and just kind of standard corporate accounting has to be just extremely difficult, probably a great opportunity for accountants out there. But I, I imagine that it's just extremely difficult to try to get a good handle on a lot of that. Yeah, it definitely is extremely difficult. I mean, we we can't kind of take a twofold view on that difficulty. Number one, we welcome it to the viewpoint that we realize that a world that actually uses cryptocurrency, like embraces it, is going to need tools to help solve some of that difficulty. So we embrace that difficulty and actually use cryptocurrency to nearly its fullest extent at the company, whether it's paying people and everyone at edge has been paid in Bitcoin since day one. No one's ever been cut a paycheck or, or been given cash, but we embrace it in the sense that we use it, but by using it, we run into all of the challenges and difficulties, but that helps us, that helps give us visibility into how do we need to build and what do we need to build in this ecosystem to solve some of those challenges? I think there's probably many cryptocurrency companies, all of them still deal with these challenges, but they would probably prefer to sweep any of them under the rug and just not even deal with cryptocurrency at all. There's like pay people in dollars, um, you know, buy everything in dollars, uh, hold dollars, but build a cryptocurrency app. Uh, that to me is almost uh, not just antithetical, but, you know, kind of against the point. You're not, you don't really know if what you're building or if what you propose to build has the right fit with the need of the markets if you're not actually using the tool. So it, it's something that we welcome, but admittedly is inherently a, a challenge. And yes, you're right. The accounting aspect of it is somewhat of a nightmare, but you know, we're seeing what tools need to be built. And to some degree, we're building some of those ourselves. So let's get into the wallet itself. You, you first launched this under the, this was Airbits back in 2014, correct? Correct. Yes. The app, was, app and company was originally called Airbits in 2014. Yeah. So I, I mean, I, I kind of came in around like 2013 and, but I was kind of more of a, a lurker back then more than anybody really getting any in, into any depth in this space. So I, I remember hearing the name back then, but I, I really didn't try it um, until uh, early last year. I think I got like a notification on earn.com um, perhaps, and, and I downloaded it to, to try it. And since then, I've been really impressed with it. You know, the UX is great. The UI, the UI is great. And you guys, you know, really get it when it comes to, you know, making, you know, a, a crypto wallet, you know, very simple and easy to understand as a, as a process for, for new users. And I think that an attention to, you know, marketing aesthetics and, and just uh, 
plain old user experience and kind of the way that most Silicon Valley companies have done, you know, with, with any kind of the, the larger name apps that you see out there. I think a lot of that's been missing in the Bitcoin space for a very long time. Yeah, it definitely has, especially at the time that we launched Airbits. Boy, was there a huge lack of any thought around user experience, even in some of the biggest names like, you know, Blockchain.info was around at the time, Coinbase, but their apps were horrendous. And so we definitely had a strong focus on, on UI, UX. We had, you know, full-time designers putting together the, the application. Um, and, you know, it, obviously this has improved much. Like today, now there's many different apps that, you know, have stellar UXs. And so the, the space has definitely matured. But at the time we launched Airbits, it was few and far between by, by far at the time. Um, and even then, we had iterated the application as times change and designs and you know preferences and style change. We had iterated you know, Airbits a few times. But I think the the thing about UI UX that that noticeably separates Edge um, from a lot of the landscape is that we try not to define UI UX by just like you know the pretty buttons and the nice sliding screens and lists and whatnot, but we try to define it also by how much we're able to hide the complexity of the technology underneath. And, and I think that's been a bit underappreciated, or at least people don't realize that that is part of the UI. Like they don't define that as, as UI and UX as much. Um, and you know, even though we had changed the brand and the product from Airbits to Edge, well, the thing that we kept going across the two was a lot of the architecture for hiding the complexity of key management, that darn private key that people have to secure. And so we like to think of ourselves as building um, a, a user experience, a, a simplified way to secure keys, a familiar way. And, and we define UX in that manner is that hey, it's not necessarily what's, what's pretty and shiny. It's more of in this industry that's already introducing a very foreign concept. How do we at least bring back a lot of familiarity to what they're already used to, such as you know, how do you create account and log in versus how do you back up a private key? And that, that being a very unfamiliar piece. And that, that's where I think where we strongly differentiate. So there's, there's three things that I really appreciate with edge and one, you know, like you said, it's, it's very simple. Um, I love the, the slide to send option. It's something very, you know, it's a small thing, but one, it, you know, it's, it's useful because it makes the accidental hits of ascend before you, you know, let's say you're just doing, you know, a third pass on the confirming the address or whatever uh, makes it non-existent. And plus it seems more fluid than just a simple tap, which is just kind of aesthetics right. to me. And, you know, two, I like that you guys can allow that you can change mining fees. So for the average person, you can go and look at the high standard low, and you can just kind of pick from that very simple option. Um, just like at a coffee shop. But you also have the custom option that lets you choose a Satoshi's per byte um, if you if you are a user and you want to get more into the weeds. And and three being the different exchange partners that you guys have, which lets you basically do uh, and, you know depending on your region, uh, exchange different currencies that you're holding for the preferred one that you have. So if someone goes, I want to send you X, but you actually want Y, you can just exchange that after you receive it. So can you talk about the different partners that you have? and how Edge itself interfaces with those exchanges. Cause it finds it, if I understand correctly, it kind of looks through, finds the best price um, for the user amongst all the partners that you have. 
Yeah, so I'll kind of rewind a bit and actually try to define what Edge is. And so you mentioned how we had launched the company as Airbits back in 2014. And Airbits was just what you'd call it's a wallet. It was a mobile Bitcoin wallet, iOS and Android. It was, but it was very focused around payments. Um, it had a built-in merchant directory, had Bluetooth and NFC payments, and its UI was really directed towards that use case. Our pivot to Edge was the realization that payments just isn't what people are looking for in the cryptocurrency world. So we refocused, rebuilt, wrote Edge almost from scratch um, and made it super modular and focused around the functionality of exchanges. And so really we define Edge less as a wallet and more as a non-custodial exchange. We take the functionality of exchange features, of exchanges, and bring them to a non-custodial app so that people aren't relying on a centralized exchange to hold their money just to be able to buy, sell, and trade it. So that kind of gives you an idea of why there's so much of this rich exchange functionality in Edge is because that is really what we define ourselves as. The fact that we utilize third-party backend exchange partners and providers is how we get there, but the product itself is, you know, it's an exchange app. And so to kind of full, more fully answer your question, you asked, like, you know, describe a little bit of how, how Edge works with our partners. There's kind of two different types of exchange partners that we utilize in Edge. One are crypto-to-crypto -crypto exchange partners. And so we currently have eight of those um, built into Edge. Companies like Changely, ChangeNow, Shapeshift, Fox Exchange, Godex, quite a handful of these. Um, in addition to one that's actually uh, an open API to decentralized exchanges on Ethereum, um, this company called Total. And they source several different Ethereum DEXs, um, including 0x, um, Kyber Network, and, and a few others. And so what, how would those all get incorporated is that under the same UI, you tap this button, Exchange, on the bottom right of the tab bar in Edge. And you're just simply presented with, you know, choose what currency you want to convert from, choose what currency you want to convert to, and then how much. Edge then automatically goes, finds, puts out a quote request across all of those instant exchange partners, and then presents you with the best price. Whichever one can surface the best price to you is what you're then presented with, and you do the, the slide to confirm like you were mentioning. And then off, you know, the source currency goes off to the exchange, and then usually within a few minutes later, you get the, the currency that you wanted to receive, just like that. And the beauty of this model is that many of these exchange partners might support different currency pairs or different currency sets. And it's kind of hard to find if you've got an obscure currency pair you want to trade, you might have trouble finding which one supports it. Um, but Edge will just find it for you. As well, some of the partners might just simply run out of liquidity of some coins. A lot of them are selling these coins from their own stash. They're basically stores. And if they run out of you know Monero one day, then suddenly you can't buy Monero. But since we source so many of these partners, we're almost always guaranteed to be able to find a partner that's able to, to, to fulfill the exchange that you want and ideally at the best price. So it gives us both better price um, and higher fault tolerance, meaning that it's available when you want to do that trade. Um, that's one aspect of exchange functionality. Edge also offers, if I'm not in, uh, incorrect, that the, you can actually buy you know, Bitcoin with whatever national currency, and once again, this is regional depending, right in the app. Um, how does that actually work? Got it, got it. So this is the second type of exchange partnership, um, kind of set of exchange partners that we have in the app, which are the fiat on and off ramp partners. And that goes through a kind of a different interface because a lot of these partners, unlike the crypto to crypto exchange partners, a lot of these partners have a very different need on the 
payment mechanism by which you go into and out of fiat and also the KYC requirements in order to kind of get verified with these partners. So here there's a, there's a button on the side menu of Edge, which is buy cryptocurrency, sell cryptocurrency. You tap on that and then you're presented with the question of like, well, what country do you live in, right? What region are you in? You choose the country and then you, you, you get shown a list of payment mechanisms by which you can buy or sell that currency. And the different payment mechanisms can go through different partners. So credit card might go through one partner, Apple Pay through another one. You wanna do a bank transfer that might go through a different partner. And we incorporate all of them inside of Edge so you can kind of more, you can more seamlessly go through these different partners. Some of them require you to create an account. However, the beauty is because Edge, the architecture of key management in Edge is such that we can encrypt and backup data for the user, which are the private keys. You never have to write down a private key. Edge also encrypts and backs up your authentication capability into one of these exchange partners. So if you go to create an account, all you're doing is providing additional KYC information to them. But the way you log in is via an invisible token you never see that gets sent from the exchange into the app on your phone, into Edge on your phone, and they get stored, encrypted and stored on your phone. And every time you want to go do another purchase, that token is decrypted and sent over to the exchange. So it's almost like a password manager automatically logged in to these exchanges without, without even doing anything. You just tap on, you know, I want to buy, you tap, you want to sell, and you're quote, quote unquote logged in. And then once you're in one of these exchange, we call them plugins. So once you're in one of these exchange plugins, each one might vary a little bit. Once again, each of these partners have different payment mechanisms, uh, different KYC flows. So once you're with them, you do the KYC as necessary, you link a bank as necessary, um, or choose a different payment mechanism such as cash, uh, request to purchase some Bitcoin, and then Bitcoin shows up inside Edge, inside one of your, your wallets, um, and you never have to kind of transfer out of the exchange. So the key differentiator here between Edge, the non-custodial exchange, and every other centralized exchange is that money never sits at rest with a centralized party. It flows through them. They're a store, effectively, is what they are. They're, they allow you to buy and sell products, and those products are cryptocurrency, but they don't hold it for you, uh, just like stores don't hold your product after you buy it. And so any of the partners that you might use inside of the app, you buy, sell, and trade, but you always hold the funds. And um, one of the most exciting things about being able to partner with many different companies around the world is that each company is kind of their expert in their local region. They have the banking relationships, you know, they have the ties to the regulators um, to get the best deals and best terms. You know, we can't do that as a company. No one company can do that really well around the world. But by doing that, we get the best in-class options for our users. And one of our most recent announcements just a couple of weeks ago was that we integrated a back-end exchange partner that allows users in Europe, specifically in Europe, to buy up to $5,000 worth of cryptocurrency. Obviously, they'll be spending euro, not dollars, but $5,000 worth of cryptocurrency, of Bitcoin, with a bank account per day, $5,000 per day, with no KYC at all. There's no email, no phone number, no selfie, no ID, none of that. They just simply say how much they want to buy, send a bank transfer, and then they receive Bitcoin. Yeah, and I, I was looking at that. Well, actually, let's, let's go back to the, the regulators. Um, have you had issues with them as the kind of the eye of Sauron, so to speak, has been, you know, in the last few months, there's been a lot more talk about Bitcoin. Um, we had the hearings in Congress. 
um, did did that specter of you know future regulations or anything like that uh, kind of influence your decision to be a non-custodial wallet, or was that kind of just a more practical or ethical decision in its origin? So our origins back in 2013, 2014, I was wanting to be a non-custodial. It come it, it, for a multitude of reasons, right? That we felt like that was really the only way to go to really be a long-term viable product in crypto. And so it's it's both from, a, I guess, ethical, we want people to hold their own money and control their own wealth, uh, but also from a security point of view, we didn't want to be the people that were holding on to millions and not billions of dollars worth of cryptocurrency that potentially has me not being able to go to sleep at night, wondering if any of our employees might go rogue and just take everyone's money. Um, all the way to the usability aspect too. We did believe in crypto as being a usable asset. And even though it's not one in the payments world, like obviously, you know, we didn't, we, we were a bit too early with crypto payments at, at physical merchants in developed countries. We still wanted crypto to be usable and realize that crypto in a custodial solution is highly unusable. It's very, very hard to use crypto in a custodial service because the custodial service for the sake of security has to hold a vast majority of the money in offline cold storage. Upwards of about 98% is very common for a lot of these custodial services such as exchanges. What that means is when a user wants to send out their money, there's a high likelihood that they won't be able to at the time they want to send the money because that 2% in hot storage might have been spent by other users in the system. And that's not true in a non-custodial manner. In a non-custodial manner, what you have currently on your device is fully spendable at that time. And so utility, the ideology, the ideology the, and as well as the systemic risk to the system. Fundamentally, we think that all of the value of Bitcoin and other crypto, all of what makes it unique and powerful is lost if a large portion of the world is holding their crypto using a counterparty. Everything from censorship resistance, guaranteed, no, no custodial solution is censorship resistant. Um, global access to anyone in the world with internet account, that's not possible. People um, won't be able to use custodial services in some countries. Um, as well, even the promise of known inflation, knowing what is the current supply of Bitcoin, I would posit is actually, go, would disappear if a vast majority of Bitcoin is actually held custodially. Because while there might only ever be 21 million coins, there might be more than 21 million claimed to be owned by people in a custodial service. And the two mismatching has happened in the past with dollars and gold, um, with dollars in a bank account. And I promise it will happen with Bitcoin as well uh, if we don't make sure a vast majority of the world is holding their own funds. Now, since you know Edge is a software wallet, and why you actually do control your own keys, um, you don't by default connect to your own node. But I love that you're able to actually do that if you if you choose to. So I was wondering if you could actually talk about um, what nodes a user is connected to by default, um, and if they're connecting to their own node that they're running. How does that work in terms of integrating, like the kind of uh, the the under the hood type thing? Um, of of integrating that is you know as far as for the less uh, technical uh, listeners. Got it, got it. So this is definitely one of the most challenging things that we do is dealing with a decentralized network of random nodes, which are really just other people's computers running and you know holding and 
transacting on the blockchain. So the default in in Edge right now is is a bit different between Bitcoin related currencies and Ethereum, XRP, Monero, and similar other currencies. So Bitcoin related currencies use a very similar code base. So Bitcoin, Litecoin, Dash, Dogecoin, Qtum, and a few others. Um, Bitcoin Cash, Bitcoin SV, those. Those, um, those currencies connect to open public nodes that are running a what's called a, a supernode implementation on top of the, the full node called Electrum. So Electrum is an open source. There's multiple Im- open source implementation of a database that sits on top of the blockchain. The database makes it sim- just easier and faster to query for the user's transactions. Because you know, a blockchain doesn't make it very easy to know what transactions you have in an address. Electrum makes that a lot simpler. So there's potentially hundreds of these nodes, these Electrum nodes running on Bitcoin, you know, usually dozens of them on many other currencies. Um, and so the phone that the user has will connect to usually about two to four of these nodes, but then it starts to rank them based on how well they behave, meaning do they respond to me in a timely manner? Do they have you know, relatively updated block heights compared to their peers? Um, and do transactions come in in a timely manner? And, and other parameters and metrics to determine, is this a good node? And it starts to rank them. And then over time, your device will actually start to connect to the nodes that it deems are the best quality nodes on the network. And it's doing this for potentially a dozen currencies, anything that's related to Bitcoin. And so while we as Edge, we run some nodes ourselves, there's no guarantee at all that the user connects to our nodes and there's no guarantee that it's only our users connecting to our nodes because all the nodes that we run are fully public. Someone else with a different wallet and a different implementation could just as likely be connecting to our nodes. So what that does provide is it provides a level of privacy and security so that while we might see some information and queries from our servers, we don't know that that's even users on edge. We don't know who those people are. Could be edge users, could might not be. Um, but that capability is some of the more complex work that we do. It's just dealing with a very unstable, you know, set of you know potentially hundreds of servers and nodes on the network. And so, yes, we also add, you know, because there are power users in this world that want to connect to their own node. Since we can connect to arbitrary, you know, any arbitrary node on the network, well, we let a user uh, basically override that and connect only to their own. And that's what happens when a user goes into settings, picks a currency like Bitcoin. Uh, checks the override, the manual override, and just punches in their address for their Electrum full node um, that they may be hosting themselves. That gives them a little bit more privacy, a little bit more control. So we give that as an option for users. It is a kind of a power user feature, just kind of just like you know, customizing your fees is a power user feature. We don't expect people, 99.9% of our users to do that or use that functionality. Um, but for the people that do, it is there. Now, going back, uh, just a step back, we were talking about regulators and everything like that. But as far as, you know, have there been and um, I I don't know if you're, you know, sometimes they have uh, gag orders and things like that, or you're not allowed to talk about it. But, you know, we've seen a lot more interest, um, even though Silk Road was such a big case early on in Bitcoin, uh, it, it seemed like it wasn't until 2017 again where we started to see interest. Um, or at least uh, publicly, you know, as far as stories that are put out uh, by law enforcement to at least highlight that they are um, kind of more actively taking an interest 
in kind of the space and, and things like that. So I was wondering, has there been inquiries from law enforcement of any country as to, you know, specific users or specific wallet, you know, wallets that, and, and I guess, you know, the, the private keys associated with them um, to, you know, or just user data, data in general. Got it. So there have been inquiries, but we've never been subpoenaed for any information. And the, and I think the reason is because with that information query, or basically that just, you know, um, a query from law enforcement, what we give them is information about the architecture of our application. We say, here's how our application works. It creates private keys, public addresses, and then it encrypts them on the user's phone. Yes, Edge has a backed up copy of that, but all of the data is encrypted and we don't have the keys to decrypt it. Only the user has that. We also don't collect any personal information. We don't collect a name, email address, phone number, because that's not necessary for us to transact on a blockchain. And that's also a security risk for the end user for us to associate encrypted blobs of data with a specific user. So it's both unnecessary, it's a friction point, and it's a security risk. And so we tell people, like we tell law enforcement, we, we have some data, but here's what it is, here's what's actually visible and what you'd be able to gleam out of it. And after that, they just say, okay, we won't bother. <laughs> they just kind of step back and oh, we'll, we'll, we'll look elsewhere. And one of the places that they would look are the more centralized exchanges. Now, admittedly, if a user goes and transacts in Edge and does, an, if they just do a regular transaction, send and receive money, then, you know, we're, we're not stopping anyone from doing that. We're not censoring that. We're not KYCing that. But if they do a an exchange operation that may involve one of our partners, then one of those partners may have done KYC on them. And that would be then a target for the regulators. So I think the regulators are really going after the exchanges more so than they're going after the software, you know, what you'd call wallet type solutions. Um, and they're going after the services that are more centralized and have KYC information, which is the thing that we don't. So to more completely answer your question, yes, we've been queried, but we haven't been subpoenaed because I think they've realized that the data we have isn't going to be of much use to them. Yeah, it's it's interesting to me that, you know, you still see a lot of... Uh, for as long as the space has kind of been around and, and uh, for people, you know, the ease of, you know, just being able to figure things out on your own, I guess, just through a few YouTube videos and, and, um, and podcasts, it's still amazing to me at the um, lack of understanding of, of how a lot of these things work within this space by, by those within law enforcement. There's definitely people there that understand it, but I think those are very few and far between. It's just, it's still so much of the space reminds me of, the early days of the internet um, and and how little understanding of it, you know, when you see questions being asked in Congress about, you know, so who, who, who could, well, what if Satoshi comes back and then he takes all the Bitcoins? Um, yeah, you know, exactly. Just, you know, these very, very lack of understanding. Exactly. Yeah. And it's, it's, uh, you know, I, I it's probably uh, for the best in a lot of ways and in, in that uh, it allows a lot more uh, uh, growth before, uh, the the uh, the more stifling aspects of, of regulation come in, into play, um, but uh, you know that was that was uh, you know most of the questions that I had was there was there anything that you want to talk about were there any upcoming features you know on the horizon for Edge uh, that you wanted to let the listeners know about um, uh, and or just you know where they can where they can find you know Edge where they can download it and um, where they can connect with you guys. 
Yeah, so obviously we do welcome and invite anyone to check out Edge. They can go to just edge.app and that has links to uh, be able to download it on the iOS uh, you know, app store and the Google Play store and even a direct download you know, for Android in case you don't have access to any of those stores. Um, and the link, as well links to our social media accounts, you know, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and whatnot. And so people could reach me as well on, on Twitter at Pollinator, P-A-U-L-L. You know, I N A T O R. Ask me any questions that they might have, um, and so yes, we'd love to hear feedback um, as far as upcoming things uh, that you can expect out of Edge. Definitely increase in the number of assets supported. Um, you know, we don't usually pre-announce those type of things, but realize we have a strong focus on the top, you know, 15, 20 assets that are on coin market cap, which are generally the highest demand assets that people want to hold and trade. As well, you should see an increase in the number of payment methods in different countries. Uh, we went through a hell of a terror the past couple of months in integrating uh, various exchange partners, you know, such as the one that supports Europe to buy and sell with no KYC. And you, you know, I think uh, listeners can expect more countries and regions. Canada is definitely on our strong roadmaps. Parts of South America and Asia as well are on the roadmap to get people more native payment methods to buy and sell. Bitcoin and other crypto to and from kind of fiat currency and bank accounts. Those are the two primary areas of focus that, you know, as, as an exchange, which is what we are, you know, we're a non-custodial exchange. I think those are the things that most people are asking for is that they want, you know, different assets and they want different ways to get into and out of the crypto from, from fiat, which in a way is another, another form of a, of an asset that an exchange provides. Other than that, we're open ears from people as to what you want to see, in edge and whether it be assets, uh, fiat support, or just features and functionality uh, in the application that you think would make it a better uh, exchange application. Um, uh, send it our way, we're, we're open ears. And I will have all the links, all the, the social media uh, profiles that, that were mentioned in the show notes at digynocrypto.com slash EP55 for episode 55. And I'd really like to thank you for coming on the show today. Oh, thanks a whole lot. Super appreciate it. <laughs>